Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 280. Interview with Jennifer Brozek and Brian Thomas Schmidt, editors of the new military fantasy anthology from Bane Books, Shattered Shields. This episode is brought to you by the new novel, The Grand Hotel, by Scott Kenimore. When a desk clerk welcomes a group of tourists into his mysterious and crumbling hotel, the last thing he expects is that a lone girl on his tour may hold the power to unravel the hidden mystery that has lain for untold centuries within the structure's walls. The Grand Hotel is a horror novel by esteemed best-selling author Scott Kenimore, author of Zombie Ohio, that takes the reader on a thrilling ride through an interconnected series of stories narrated by the desk clerk and the residents of the hotel itself. And while it's not known whether or not the desk clerk is actually the devil incarnate, it is strange that so many visitors who come for a tour of the hotel have a way of never leaving. Scott Kennemore has been featured on the website before, as Timothy C. Ward is a big fan of his, so we heartily recommend that you check out this new novel, The Grand Hotel, and you can learn more by coming to adventuresinsci-fi-publishing.com, clicking on the image that you'll see on the homepage, and if you're coming after the sponsorship is ended, just go to the show notes for episode 280, and you'll find the link right there at the top of the page for The Grand Hotel by Scott Kennemore. Enjoy, and on to the show. And now, podstructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Public Sci-Fi Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy literature. This is Sean Farrell. And this is Moses Siregar. Today we are discussing military fantasy, and Shattered Shields is the new military fantasy anthology from Bane Books. You can already find it hot off the presses in uh, bookstores around the country. Um, and the book features stories from David Farlin, Sean McGuire, Glenn Cook, Elizabeth Moon, on and on and on it goes. And we will talk about that with the editors, Jennifer Brozek and Brian Thomas Schmidt, who are both on the line with us. Uh, Jen, welcome to the show. Hello. By the way, do you prefer Jen or Jennifer? Jen or Jennifer is fine, just not Jenny. All right, Jenny, it will not be. And our friend Brian is back on the show. How you doing, Brian? Good. I didn't know the show still existed. I, you guys are still going, huh? <laughs> funny. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. So <laughs> Welcome back. It's nice to be back with the new incarnation, uh, the old incarnation, the new old incarnation kind of thing, I guess. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Um, and I should have known you would have start with something like that. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're going strong here, man. We're actually putting out some pretty good shows these days. <laughs> I know. I, I had to give. A, I had to put a little jab in because I know you guys got one planned for me later. If I figure, so I might as well go anyone I can. <laughs> Well, I had all these nice things I was going to say about your anthologies. But, Jen, let's talk about your work. <laughs> so what do you want to know? Okay, then, you know, let's start off with this. Let's start off by uh, just talking about, in general, how the concept for this anthology came about and how uh, Jennifer and Brian, you two, decided to work together on this project. Well, it was kind of interesting. Uh, Brian and I had met at Rainforest Writers Retreat. And by that time, I had... I don't know, 10 or more anthologies out. And uh, 
he pings me one day and says, hey, do you want to do a military fantasy anthology with me? And I said, well, if you can sell it to one of the big five, or maybe it was big six at the time, uh, yeah, I will do that with you because I'm a big fan of military fiction. And, you know, Brian seemed like a pretty interesting person to edit an anthology with. Less than a week later, he comes back and says, okay, Bane Books has bought it. Wow. Now it's just like, oh, okay. We haven't <laughs> actually put this on my schedule yet, but here we go. <laughs> well, well that, actually, it was right about your birthday, I believe, Jim, when I came birthday. back to you, wasn't it? Yes, it was yeah. my birthday, December 9th. Yeah, well, I had wanted to work with Jen, and she had expressed an interest in working with me, and she had been giving me a lot of great tips on editing anthologies. And as she said, we had met. Uh, at Rainforest, and we'd known each other from online, of course, before that. Uh, and so it just kind of worked out. Jen is a military brat. Yes. So I felt she'd have some unique perspective there. She also tends to like darker fiction than I do, which I thought would also give it a good mix. Uh, I like with the our case, yeah, coming together. So it just kind of, you know, everything. So, you know, this is one of those things that I think was charmed because I have not sold anything since this fast. <laughs> I literally pitched it by email to Tony Weisskopf, who had just come back from a cruise that day, and she was going through her email, and I mean, within five hours, I got a, if you can get these three band authors, or one of these three, I will buy this book. And the next day, we got Elizabeth Moon, I think, or Elizabeth Moon and Catherine Vassaro, or somebody on board, and she said, okay, let's go. So it's a it's a military fantasy uh, focus. So that that's basically what you told the authors then to submit something that has more of a military flavor in fantasy. We a, a lot of times when you have a traditional fantasy, there there is a lot of war and um, battles in it, but it's at a fifty thousand foot level. And having grown up in the military and been in the military, one of the things that I wanted was uh, much more in the trenches. So when when we pitched it to the authors, we pitched it to. Uh, you know, we wanted to be in the thick of things uh, because the military is built on individuals who have been brought together uh, to work as a team. And this is what we wanted to focus on. You know, we wanted people either scouting or fighting or running or working together. And we wanted them uh, to have that camaraderie that military people have. That a lot of the customs and courtesies, you know, um, authors aren't really aware of, so they don't they don't put the the details into the writing. So we we really worked with the authors to make sure that there was there was stuff that a military person could, could read and go, oh, I recognize that, hmm. and they wouldn't do the oh my god, did they really really say yet another iconoclastic character? you know, yells at the officer and doesn't reap the rewards of being an ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and one of the things was that I was seeing, when I came up with the concept of a military fantasy, I had seen a lot of military fantasy, things like Mike Cole's series, and, uh, of course, Glenn Cook's Black Company had been around for a while, the Elizabeth Moonpack Scenario had been around, but there wasn't a real defined subgenre of military fantasy, and I thought... There seems to be more and more military fantasy type stuff coming out. This is a good opportunity to do an anthology that would be of interest because these books are obviously meeting meeting the need. So I, the other thing was to say, look, we we want we have to have a formal 
organized military of some kind, not just soldiers with some kind of a half-assed attempt at, at, at saying, oh, yeah, this guy's a sergeant, and so and so, and he reports to so-and-so, and that's the... We wanted more of an in-depth extent, as she was saying, to it. But we also didn't want just necessarily to have it be about the glorified war, you know, hey, we're big heroes and fighting this cool, but to dig in a little deeper, what are the issues involved with war? Uh, if good or bad, uh, you know, what, what, are the, what are the stakes that are really going on here? So, you know, we got some stories from perspective of the traditional, what might be called the monsters or bad guys. We got stories from the point of view of, you know, heroes. We got stories from the point of view of, of women, you know, female warriors, not just men. We kind of wanted a full diverse spectrum of what we were getting so that we really were, you know, examining not just stories about military people or, or epic fantasy stories. And we did asked for high fantasy as the focus. We really wanted something that was a broader spectrum of the, the face of war. So do you, do you have modern military stories in here too then? No, no. Actually, what we're hoping to do is a, a trilogy or a quartet actually now of, of uh, anthologies. This one was epic fantasy military. The next one we want to do urban fantasy military. The next one we want to do is space opera military. And then Brian just recently came up with a, the monster core uh, anthology, hmm. which is the, the, the bad guys have won. And now you're dealing with an army that is monsters. That's and cool. It, that well, the, it's from the point of, from the point of view of the monsters, from the point of view of the people that are the traditional bad guys, they're right. the heroes of their own story. What is it? What is the story from their side? Hmm. I like that. That's a good idea. You know, I wanted to uh, jump in on what Brian was saying about... So, Brian, you were mentioning uh, military fantasy not really being a def uh, defined genre, if you will. I think anyway, even the casual reader could say military science fiction and have an idea of what that is, whether it's, you know, Bane puts out uh, quite a bit, or maybe they think of Ender's Game or, some, or Old Man's War, something like that. Um, what challenges do you think you guys will face um, from a marketing point of view for maybe the cat more casual reader who hears military fantasy and they go, what is that? Well, I mean, you know, the thing is, one of the things we did to help with that was we got some stories in military fantasy series that are popular. Like for example, the black company story that Glenn Cook did, the, the Pax Sinarian story that Elizabeth Moon did. And since Elizabeth Moon has supposedly wrapped up the Pax Sinarian cycle, at least for any, any time in the near future, we have the last Pax Sinarian story. Um, we have a, uh, uh, a story from a military uh, fantasy uh, series that Larry Korea is going to be doing for Bayon. The, the books don't come out until next year, so we have the first glimpse of that. And then we also um, got some, uh, some you know, October Day uh, story from Shannon. Shannon has a really popular urban fantasy series called October Day. Well, she went back like a thousand years before that to the you know, medieval days and said, here's what, here's what their, their relatives were doing in those days in the story for us. So uh, that will help us. Part of it is just, I think, you know, the fact that there was enough military fantasy stuff, you know, the Erickson Bassett law is another example that yeah. I didn't mention before. All those things are out there. So I think people will have some idea uh, of it already, but here we are basically doing the, the fantasy version of what the military sci-fi is. It's just there's a little bit more formal element of military in it than what you normally see in fantasy. And so I don't know that it'll be that hard because I think that 
I really think military fantasy is starting to take off. I know there's at least one more anthology coming out from John Joseph Adams with a similar theme, and I think you're you're seeing a little bit. I think there's several more book things. Mike Cole's next book series is about to drop. It's military fantasy, and I think you're going to see it more and more uh, well defined uh, as a subgenre. Uh, kind of, we're hoping we're on the cusp of it, but uh, I just don't see it as a big problem because I think there's plenty of fans out there who like the military aspect and will enjoy digging into that particular element more than usual. I have a question for each of you then. We can go to Jennifer first. Uh, I want you guys to mention a story in this anthology that is surprising, that you think will be surprising to readers. Something, maybe something oh, different. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to go with Bonded Men by James L. Sutter. He actually based uh, Bonded Men on a Roman uh, fighting group where... There were uh, gay lovers in the, uh, the, gr- the fighting group where they fought as pairs instead of in these large groups of um, organized uh, fighting men. And they were, they were vicious. He actually based it on historical uh, uh, evidence of these bonded men. And I think that's going to be a very surprising story to a lot of people because it's a great mixture of Roman um, high fantasy because the bonded men are fighting against like centaurs and, and dragons. And uh, at the crux of it, their relationship between each bonded men um, is the story. And that's what all of these, these stories are about. They are about the individual uh, fighters and how they work together with their teams. So that that is one of my favorite stories in the entire book. Wow. How about one from you, Brian? Yeah, the bonded pairs is kind of an interesting concept that you guys will, I think. I really like what Wendy Wagner did uh, in uh, Words of Power with her um, golems. Um, but I'm going to, but actually I'm going to point out the words, I'm going to say that uh, I think Sarah Hoyt's story in particular is going to really stand out for a lot of people because she basically took dragons in World War One. imagine if they had dragons, men who transform into dragons, fighting World War One, dropping bombs, and fighting the aerial battle, and what would that look like? Uh, and I think that probably is the one that I'm going to go with, because it's really, um, it's really a unique take, and it's kind of fun that even though we're doing the high fantasy feel to it, and it does have a high fantasy feel, that we've gone as, as modern as World War One, uh, it it kind of stretches the boundaries a little bit, and that'll surprise people a little bit. And that that story is called uh, "Rising Above." Yes, thank you. So what you're saying is those are your two favorite stories, and the other ones are all okay. No, I'm just kidding. I am <laughs> no, kidding. No. I, one of my <laughs> other favorite stories is "Hussar and Wary by Cat Rambo. It is a a group of women centaur warriors basically having been routed and they're trying to make it home before they all get horribly massacred by the humans. They can outrun them, right? Um, well, not in like mountains. <laughs> they have, okay. they have the problems with that. Plus they also okay. have to find enough food to eat to fuel their bodies. That sounds awesome. It's actually a really great story. I mean, I, there isn't a story in here. I don't like yeah, that's the other thing about it. We got really, I mean, you know, we, we got we got so lucky that the, the, the book put itself together. You know, Jen and I had worked together. 
we kind of come at things from different angles in some ways. It could have been uh, a lot of pulling teeth, fighting back and forth over the whole thing. But the truth is, the stories that we got were so good, and it was so obvious which ones had to go in there. Mm. That really, it was just a matter of figuring out what order to put them in. And I did the, I, I think I did the, the second half, and she did the first half as far as the order of the book. And pretty much, that's it. I mean, we, we really didn't have, it wasn't any debate involved because oh. the, the stories just told themselves. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna talk about favorite stories, I don't really like to do that because I don't want to alienate my authors because I enjoy working with them. But I'll tell you this: the the story that has to be the favorite as an editor is Paxinarian story by Elizabeth Moon because we had to like maybe do four edits on the whole story. It was so good. Mm. <laughs> you send me a clean story, I don't have to edit. That'll be my favorite story. <laughs> yeah, she and uh, Shauna McGuire's manuscript was amazingly clean. Yeah, Shauna's are always very clean. I've edited Shauna several times, and I'm always impressed with how clean her manuscripts are. When you're putting an anthology together, and I know, Brian, from some of your past anthologies that, that you try to do this, at least I think you do, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, what is the balance there of trying to have some name recognition with the authors that are in the book. And obviously the story quality is first, but it's always good to have some name recognition with some of the authors to draw in some readers of the book, but then also trying to, to mix in some, um, some newer voices, maybe someone's first story or someone who has a few stories out there. And, and, and you kind of play a part in fostering that young career and helping push them forward. You know, uh, how, how do you balance all these different things that you probably want to do uh, when putting an anthology together? Well, you know, we have a first story in this. I think this Joe Zizia's story uh, was his first sale. And I don't have the book in front of me, so I don't remember the title. Maybe Jane can tell us what it is. But uh, um, Cup of Wisdom. Yeah, no. I, and also oh. Gray Reinhardt's story was the first one. For Great, him. Well, great. It was, but that wasn't Gray's first professional sale. I'm pretty sure this was Joe's. At oh. the time, this was his first professional sale, I think. Uh it took so long to come out that I think he's had other sales since, but this was, um, but yeah, that was Gray's first opportunity to be in a Bayon anthology. And Gray Reinhardt is the flush master for Bayon now for several years. So it's kind of ironic that he wasn't an official Bayon author, even though he'd sold a number of stories to analog and other places. And he finally has one in a Bayon book. So I know it has special meaning for him because of that. Uh, but to answer your question, um, you know, the, the publishers expect us to have a certain number of leaders or headliners, as you might call them, that are people that are names that are recognizable, that are marquee names to put on the front of the book, who bring a fan base to buy the book. In this case, we've got, I think, seven of them. We've got Shauna McGuire and Glenn Cook, uh, Elizabeth Moon, Sarah Hoyt, Larry Correa, uh, I would count Robin Wayne Bailey uh, and Dave Gross as well. Uh, I don't know if I forgot anybody, but those are Dave Farland. Those are all, who? Dave Farland. Oh, Dave oh, Farland. Sorry. I'm sorry, Dave. Yeah, yeah, of course, Dave Farland. Those are all people who come with a cachet of fans, and Dave wrote a Rune Lord story for us. And since the long-awaited last Rune Lord book isn't out yet, I think people will really enjoy that. Uh, and so you try to get, get them to do that, and then when you can, you want to get them to write something in a familiar year for us, because, of course, that gets people excited to to see a different aspect of, of something familiar that they really enjoy that's popular. And then you want to invite a cornucopia of a mix of up-and-coming, established, and new authors, and preferably of different socioeconomic or 
even racial backgrounds, I suppose, is the best word for it. You want people that, that come from all different backgrounds and beliefs so you get a variety of points of view in the stories that, that you get. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so you'll have gay writers or, you know, uh, people who are black or from foreign countries or, you know, and obviously female writers as well as male. You want to try to find a good mix of all these different elements so that when you're picking stories, you end up with a good mix in your table of contents. And I guess to me, the best, there's no, I don't go by quotas and I don't go by numbers. I just, I generally try to invite half female, half male to everything I do. Sometimes it's hard to find them. Sometimes people back out, but that's my general goal. And within that, that I try to find gay, straight, um, people who are, who are Western people who are non-Western, you know, to add into that mix so that we get a good mix. And Jennifer, what, how do you approach these things? Well, it, it really does depend on the project, but uh, like if I'm doing an anthology for Evil Girlfriend Media, they very specifically would like two-thirds uh, female authors. So that informs my invitation. Um, when it comes to uh, one of the big five anthologies, I always do at least 50% women uh, and 50% male, and then of that mixture, I try to get a good uh, 50% of POC. And I actually have to take the time to research people. And, it's, and you know, I look to see who has won awards, who has stuff published, who, who's being known. Um, and then I go to, like, uh, Ken Liu's page or... Um, Saladin Ahmed's uh, Twitter feed, and I find out who they are talking about. Uh, and I look to see what their publications are to make sure that they they uh, have the right kind of publications to get into a big five anthology. And then I extend the invitation. Um, you know, sometimes it's like cold calling, and they, they have no idea who I am. Uh and then sometimes they are they're they're like, oh yeah, hey, I know who you are. This is cool. Let me I'll I'll do this. But I also, because I've done so many anthologies, I know a lot of people um, who may not normally be open to anthologies, who I can talk to and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Is this something that you're even vaguely interested in? Mm. Uh, so I, I do actually do the numbers and, and, and it's work um, because I wrote a, um, a blog post about this for Locust. One diverse anthology is not enough. It is work, and we absolutely need to let these other voices be heard. So I make sure that happens. And that's something that I really enjoyed about working with Brian. There wasn't even a question of that. I mean, we, we really didn't even – it was it wasn't, you know – don't get that person because I'd rather have this other person. It was like, Oh, Hey, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. And you know, a lot of the thing is, is that um, you spend a lot of time reading too, to try yes. to find and get familiar. I, I'm not going to, there were a couple of people we hired cold for this project that, and, uh, and one of them got a story in it. And I think one of them didn't, one of them was recommended to us by one of the other authors. And another one was, was somebody that was recommended actually by Mike Cole. And that's Joe. And Joe's story made it in. Joe had, has a military background and some stuff. And I had met him at, a, at World Fantasy uh, a few years ago in Columbus. And so um, gave him a shot. And, and I remember both Jennifer and I were kind of like, we never read his work. We don't know what we're going to get. And we were both like, oh, my God, I love this story. And then we got it. It was kind of like, 
one of those times when you're just like, wow, this guy can write. We don't know who he is, but he blew us away, you know, kind of thing. And that's, that's part of the joy for me of doing this is you get to discover people who are really talented who you would never have worked with if circumstances hadn't come together like they did and, and, and they blow you away with a really great story. So how many anthologies have each of you edited now? Uh, me? Hmm. Each of you. Jim's got like 12, I'm pretty sure. I did no, a count think, the other I day. At this point, it is 14 with okay. another one coming out this year, Chicks Dig Gaming. And then I have on tap to do two more next year already. So four, 14, let, that's a good number. I'll, I'll go with 14. <laughs> it's on my website. It's on, under my bibliography. I have my, I, I, I don't know. And I just don't want to go clicking through and making noise uh, on it. But I've, I've been doing anthology since uh, 2006. I think it was 2006. Uh, and I started trying to do it in 2006, and then uh, I got the first one out in 2009, and I won an award for it. Uh, Grants Pass, uh, Near Future, Shared World, uh, Apocalyptic Anthology. Now, this right. is number four for me that's actually been released. But I just turned in another one to Bayon. I have another one under contract for Bayon. I have another one under contract for Edge. And I have uh, just signed, I'm just getting ready to sign a contract with Kevin J. Anderson's Wordfire for yet another one. So I have basically edited four, five that are, six that are, six that are done (laughs) and have another six on tap pretty much. So I, you know, by, by the end of 2016, I'll be at 12 or 13. Okay. I wanted to just get that established before I ask you guys. If you have advice for any of our listeners who might want to edit anthologies someday, I actually have a book out specifically for that question. Nice. It's called. Um, yeah, it's a really good. It's a good book too. I'll I'll, I'll brag about it. I, I for her because that way she doesn't have to. I I can tell you that um, there there's so much useful advice about how to do the, all the mundane details of editing, as far as um, you know assembling authors and figuring out a budget and pitches and writing, writing up the pitches to sell it to a publisher, writing up the pitches to sell it to an author, so on and so forth. That are things that, you know, not everybody knows how to do and that, you know, there's an art to it. And Jim does a really great job. It's not a very thick book. It's kind of concise, but that's all the better for it. And it really helps you get uh, info on all that stuff. Industry talk and insiders look at writing RPGs and editing anthologies. Yes, and it, yeah. the, the book is only like a uh, hundred pages, and it's actually two columns that I was I wrote for two different publications, and I kept getting the same like five questions over and over, um, you know, about writing role playing games and about putting together anthologies. So when we put together my publishing house, um, I'm like, okay, what can we do that I cannot sell anywhere else, and I won't sue myself if I screw this up. <laughs> and so we put together this this book where we expanded all the, the, the columns and then answered those five questions and put in there, how do you pitch an anthology? Here's your one-page um, thing that you can put to the publisher. And, yeah, I've, I've gotten really good reviews on it. It's a, it's a good seller. that it, It's constantly selling on a very slow, steady pace. But my biggest... Thing for uh, people who want to put an anthology together is to know 
what the anthology is about and to love that topic because you are going to read these stories over and over and over again. My advice then would be that's the concept is so important and really loving it. Yes. And I, the other thing is do your research. I am constantly reading Locus and the books coming out list and everything to see who's doing what. Um, I email and have conversations with and I'm Facebook friends with a number of other editors, finding out what they're doing to the degree that they're putting it out there. Um, authors come and tell me about anthologies that they've been invited to. I mean, you really have to know what people are doing. I mean, the reality is we, we turned this project in a year ago, uh, and it's just now coming out. And I just turned in a project that won't come out until a year from now. So, I mean, by the time everything comes about, you're kind of, it's a long process, particularly with traditional publishers. So, and, and really if you want to, if you want to make it topical, if you want to make an, a topical anthology, look at what, movies are coming out in 18 months from now what's what's in production that will give you a good idea of of what will be in the mainstream if you if you're really looking to say i want to do a mainstream anthology i'm not looking to do something fringe um if you want to go fringe don't worry about it just do what you want to do right but again you, you want you want to know what other people are doing because you don't want them on top. You don't want to do the same anthology on top of each other. Right. The other thing is knowing what, knowing what's going to be coming out and topical, it's going to tell you what people are going to be talking about. And that is going to give you word of mouth to help. Like for example, galactic games that I'm doing, that I have to turn in, in, um, uh, May for Bayon will be released in 2016 during the Rio games. And it's a science fiction Olympic slash sports anthology. So I deliberately did that so that I could time it, and I did it way in advance, so I could time it to come out with the Olympics because we don't, you know, the Olympics are going to be what everybody's talking about during that time, and it'll be a lot of fun. It'll give me a, a head up, a leg up in selling my anthology. So, for example, if you're going to do a, an anthology of political themed stories, then you know, around the next presidential elections, things like that, to, people are That's interested fun. in that. So that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Jennifer, I want to ask you, I had, uh, not I, we had uh, Glenn Cook on the show. Gosh, it's been a couple of years. Brent interviewed him, and so I didn't get to participate in it, but it was an awesome interview to listen to. And I'm just wondering, what is it like yeah, to work I, with I, him? I was there, John. I interviewed oh, yeah, him. you were there. That's right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> you know, Brian actually introduced me to Glenn Cook at uh, an anthology uh, convention we were at. And you know what? He was a complete professional in person and uh, working with him. I mean, the, the one thing I've noticed, the, the more professional or higher level anthologies that you work on in general, the easier the authors are to work with because they've been there, they've done that, they understand what, why an editor wants things changed. Uh. And, you know, he had no problems. I think, in fact, we sent him his edits and he sent us back an, an email that says, I accept everything. Awesome. Uh, I, I, I really I can't remember if it was more than that, but I'm pretty sure that's what he said. Well, we made Glenn we made Glenn cut like three thousand words out of his story because he had written it, it. It felt more like a novel. We said, you know, people who are not familiar with all the characters are going to be confused because you have so many characters. So he had to do a rewrite. And so that was David said, that I had that for. Yeah, he sent us an email back and said thank you. He said, "I you guys made the story better." By pushing me to do that, 
the story is better. And, you know, that, that to me is the consummate pearl. I don't get very many thank yous for telling people to cut their words and kill their babies. But, <laughs> you know, when you got a guy who can appreciate, it's happened to me now a few times. And people are like, you know what? You, you, you helped me make, nail the story and get it better. That means a lot because that's all we're really trying to do is we want to put out the best stories out there. We want to look good, but we want the authors to look good too. And we want everybody to be happy. Yeah, I, 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 there were some some problems on some of the stories, but by and large, we didn't have a problem with any of the edits. I have another question for Jennifer. Uh, I know you've written quite a bit in the role playing game arena. Like you've written quite a few role playing yes books, right? Yes, um, I've won uh, awards for them too. <laughs> right, that's cool. That's really cool. Um, I was wondering. Also, I don't know how often we've really talked about this on the show, but for our listeners who might want to go in that direction someday. They might want to write, you know, role-playing game books. Um, do you recommend it? <laughs> you know, oh, it? If you want to do it because you love gaming, then yes. If you want to do it because you think it's a viable um, way to make a living, no. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, and, and there's some reasons for this because most of the role-playing game industry is based on freelancers. If you are lucky enough to work for Watsi or Paizo or someone like that, where you actually have a job in 401k and, and such like that. That's awesome. Totally do it. Um, otherwise, you, you really actually have to build up your cred as a role-playing game designer who works to spec, works to deadline, and does good work. And then... Um, <sighs> The role-playing game industry is one of those industries where payment is often scattered. I think that's a good way of putting it. Mm. Scattered. Like um, like there's a novella I wrote for for uh, or Shadowrun, and I haven't been paid my advance yet because there are some hoops that I still have to jump through. I mean, for others, I mean I've I've had the the problem where I've written a full book and I've never been paid. And one of the things I want people to, to know is there's two things to look for. Do not ever do royalty only payments because you will never be paid. At least that's my experience. And do not do payment on publication. Only do, do your contracts payment on acceptance of the manuscript. Because I wrote a book with a very well-known RPG author the contract said payment on publication. They decided not to publish the book. I didn't get paid. So if you love if you love role-playing games and you love building the world and you love working to stupidly tight deadlines and, and it's a thing that you want to do, go for it. But it is not a viable profession until you get to the you are Monty Cook and Ken Height and um, Matt Forbeck, that those kind of people, or you get in with one of the, the larger companies. That's interesting. I it's, should it's, point out that that same book where she gives that advice about editing anthology, she also gives a lot of advice about this, about writing for gaming and different things like that. That's cool. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, sounds about right. It's sad, but it's, <laughs> it is. I mean, I love it. And, and, um, I have, I actually have stepped back from going, doing game design. And I, uh, at this point I try only to do tie in fiction, but you know, just recently Paizo said, Hey, we're looking for 
a new game developer, a female game developer, and they're local to me. And I'm actually seriously, you know, like, hey, maybe I should apply for that. Hmm. So then... Uh Another big question for you, Jennifer, as a tie-in writer now, what, what are you finding that market to be like these days? I, I love doing tie-in fiction because you have a built-in audience who wants to see what, what's coming out. I've got a Battletech young adult novel out there that has been consistently selling since it came out. Um, I've got a Shadowrun novella out. Well, no, it's not out yet. It's waiting for artwork. Um but I couldn't get into the novel line because basically people would shank each other for it because, <laughs> you know, Lovecraft and, and if you're doing some stuff for fantasy flight games, um, you know, the, there's a lot of tie in authors who, who really want these. And so you have a mixture of timing. Who do you know? Can you get it done in time? Um, like John Mayberry just did an open call for, hey, I have two slots for the X-File anthology that I'm doing. Um, I need pitches by the end of the week, and in three months I need the story. And I'm sitting there looking and going, I don't have a story um, idea, and I have two novels due to my publisher. So I can't do that. But I've turned in uh, you know, another Shadowrun short story. I just turned in another tie-in fiction. It depends on who you're working with and i recommend that if you are a tie-in writer you join the international tie-in writers association because those people are both authors and editors and you, you and you won't get shanked and well you know <laughs> the, people get really excited when there's a call and 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 you know hopefully you won't get shanked i mean but you know it, it happens and I, I mean it verbally. I don't mean like physically. I've never actually <laughs> shanked physically for uh, a contract, and I hope I never am. Can, can you explain? Can you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? What, what that looks like when that is occurring? Uh, explain being shanked. Yeah. Okay. Well. Because my only familiarity with that term is when I used to play soccer and you'd shank it, right? <laughs> oh, uh, when I shake it. Uh, okay, so what happens? Let's go Shadowrun novels. Uh, John Halfers is the editor there, and uh, one of the editors, um, and he works with Jason Hardy. And one of the things I do, he, I'm like, hey, I'd love to do a Shadowrun novel. And he's like, well, you know, there's these 15 people some of whom are New York Times bestsellers who all want to do novels too. So, yeah, I don't think so. And in a way, it's kind of like you have to compete with, um, with reputations and names that will bring in um, sales. Mm. So while you have a built-in audience, publishers are always looking for uh, – the name that will bring in a new audience. So when you write tie-in fiction, you have to write it for people who may not know the genre, who may not care about the genre. They just may like cyberpunk and, hey, let's do the Shadowrun stuff. Uh, you will also get people who will, when you're at a convention and you're talking to an editor, uh, another author will come in and break into the conversation to basically say, I want to do this thing with you. And, and it, it, you have to, there's a, a whole politeness and customs and courtesy thing where you have to kind of be like, well, okay. All right. I guess, John, I'll talk to you later. I've got your email. 
um, you can talk to this person who is being really insistent right now. So, um, okay. Yeah. I've seen yeah, some I, of that at conventions. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when you get the, the captive audience, the guy who's, who won't stop talking <laughs> yep. at you when you're trying to sell a book at a table. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's why it's like, I, people will come up and say, I want to write for this. Tell me how to write for this, or I want to write for you. And this is why you have to publish me. And they don't hear the words, we're not accepting pitches. We're not accepting new authors. Because a lot of people believe, well, you just haven't seen or heard just how awesome I, I am. Right. I talk about this in the book about how to actually make a good impression rather than a not good impression. Well, part of it is it's just hard to get published. We all know that. It's, it's hard and people are passionate about their work and they want to get it out there and they have the dream. And so, I mean, I got, I got an email the other day unsolicited from some local guy who heard I was an editor and I had Shattered Shields coming out, sent me his work, and I had to write him back and say, I deleted your email. I'm sorry. I can't even look at it. You put me in a liability situation because you sent me your work unsolicited. If I have something in development, you could sue me. That something that's similar to what you sent me. Don't do that. That is a bad first impression. So, I'm, but, but the reason that people resort to stuff like that is that they just they just really want to get that opportunity, and the opportunities are hard to get. But you know. It sounds cliche, and people get annoyed when you say it, but really, truly, if you do write an awesome story, that is the number one way to get heard and and seen, and then you just have to get it out there, and that means you've got to spend a lot of time submitting it, and eventually somebody's going to take notice, and something's going to happen, and I know it sucks, because that may mean you spend a year or two years of your life sending it around to all these editors before somebody notices it, but truthfully, that is the number one way, and then once you've got that credit, it's easier to get in because people, you can say I've been published in such and such. People will say, Oh, I've heard of that and look you up. Mm -hmm. You know, and that, that's it, the beauty it, of doing credibility is people understand when they say, well, when they say, you say I'm an author, they go, the first thing they usually say is either I always wanted to write a novel or mm -hmm. have I read anything you've written to which I'm like, I don't know what you like to read. But when you do tie-in, you're like, oh, well, I did the Shadowrun thing. And if they understand what Shadowrun is, there's this instant connection. The one thing that's just recently happened, um, Amazon has started doing basically uh, tie-in fiction for properties they bought the rights to. And uh, it, it, I don't know how what, well it's going right now. Um, but I know it certainly gave a buzz to the International Tie-In Writers Association because anybody could write for these these properties, and it was muddying the waters from the people who actually professionally do tie-in um, writing because it takes a specific skill of not of keeping the the same tone and genre and um, not not doing the Mary. Mary Sue, Marty Stu thing where you want to put yourself into the story right. um, where you are actually expanding the world and doing basically canon fan fiction that um, enhances the story that's already there. I do know that Amazon is seeking out big name authors. Kevin J. Anderson, for example, I know has told me he's done stuff for them. There've been several other authors as it's well. I mean, Worlds. Yeah. Kit, at Kindle World, and they 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 pay well though. 
They do, if they accept it. I mean, if you're an established person, you can get, you know, a really decent advance for a novella or a short story in Veronica Mars or one of those universes that they do. Veronica Mars is just one example. There are, there are numerous ones that they have several more TV shows. Uh, I think vampire Chronicles and other shows are on there. And then there's some other, uh, literary worlds as well. Uh, you can just Google Kindle worlds and you can find them. But you know, again, uh, it's getting competitive because the, the originally they, they, they opened it broadly and now they're getting more narrow about who they take because there's a lot of people that want to do it. I want to ask another anthology question here before we, uh, we come up against the clock, and that's, um, you know, Brian, you've had uh, some good anthologies out through smaller publishers, uh, most recently the Ray Gun Chronicles, which is a great space opera anthology with a story from a future Hugo winner in there. Anyway. Um, <laughs> well, are you talking about that Sean Farrell guy? I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, I haven't read the book. No. <laughs> no, no, no. No, you know, when you say future Hugo winner, I was like, we don't have a Moses Sear in our story. Again. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Well, <laughs> this, this podcast has, has, he's a future Nebula winner, I think. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I, actually, I've read Sean's uh, Writers of the Future submission for this quarter, and it's it just lights out good. So That's good. Yeah. Well, Sean's a good Sean's a good writer. He does really good stuff. He's written me he's written me several things. I've worked with him on some 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 I was able to buy, some I didn't. But I know I've helped him submit stuff to other markets. So, you know, I, I Sean's going to break out. He's doing great work. So, no problem. You may well very well win that hit. You know, you never know. I'm not sure how the conversation turned this way, but I like it. Let's keep this. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> anyway, what was your question related to that? You were yes, yes. The, I got myself all off track there. But I'm just curious, uh, how was working with Bain? And I mean, I'm assuming, you know, they, they're a larger publisher. They have more resources, perhaps. But I mean, how was that experience different than, obviously, you're not having to do a Kickstarter campaign to get your funding. And um, not that there's, you know, anything wrong with that, obviously, but it just must have been a little bit different experience. Can you contrast well, and compare what, the two? Yeah, they're, the contracts are a little different. The the, the percentages are a little different. But then Bayon also, I mean, Bayon Bayon sent out all the contributor copies for us. We didn't have to spend our money or time doing that. Mm. That was huge. That's something that usually comes out of your pocket with a small press. You pay it out of whatever you get paid. So that's an expense, and that, you know, you have to be responsible for that. You have to pay to get those books shipped to you, and you have to do all that. Um, there is a uh, uh, they gave they helped us with our launch party that we're doing next week at Oricon. We're going to be doing a launch party this coming Saturday, the uh, the eighth at uh, in Portland at the Oricon. And Bayon, you know, sent me a check. I just got it today, in fact, uh, to help pay part of the expenses for that. Mm. Um, you know, my point is that. Uh, they have resources to do that. A small press would have said, you know, we'll help you as best we can, but they don't always have those resources. Bayon also gets the book out to a lot of uh, opportunities for reviews and things that we don't because of the fact that they are distributed by Simon & Schuster. So there's a lot of people that will take notice of it because it's considered a major book as opposed to just a, a, a quote, fly-by-night small press. Uh, there are still markets where that's what you, it takes to get reviewed. Small press just doesn't get reviewed. Kickstarter won't get reviewed. Self-published won't get reviewed. So, I mean, you get in the door with those kind of things. You get in the door with things. Uh, you know, I've, I walked in my sto- in the store today, and bar- I've walked into Barnes & Noble several times this weekend, and my book's on the shelf. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, unless, in, and, and, and I didn't know that my book would be on the shelf when I walked in. Uh, with a small press, usually you're doing consignment. So I know which stores have my book. 
So that's been kind of a, uh, interesting, uh, but with small press, you do now. get more, uh, more control of the product. Like, with with um, my Daw and Bane anthologies, I never saw the cover until they hit Amazon. I mean, I didn't know, I hadn't even seen it. I had no no input. But with almost every other smaller press anthology, either I went and found the artist and, and contracted them uh, and helped design it, uh, or I had some input on, on it, uh, which is really nice if you're really a control freak. <laughs> um, but you know uh, and, yeah. and it, come, it goes back and forth between the small presses as to whether or not the publisher sends out the contributors copies or not you know uh, yeah, and or, I, the other thing is you get control over what goes on the cover more I think you know like for example you know with, with Reagan Chronicles I determined what names went on the cover with with Bayon we didn't know who was going on the cover until we saw it mm. yep. that's what you know they do their thing and it's fine um they were great to work with. They did ask our input. There were a couple things uh, that we we modified on the cover slightly, but we didn't. I mean, the art was still good. We didn't really want to do anything. I mean, they did a great job with it. So it's you end up being, be, yeah. I mean, you you end up being really really happy with uh, what you get in that case if you get lucky, I guess. But because uh, I know people who've had nightmare stories, but I mean, I, I I'm I'm working on my third book with Tony Weisskopf at Bayon now, and I can tell you that you know. If I called them up and asked them to send a copy, like they sent a copy to Sean, you know, I want Sean was going to do this interview, and um, all I had to do was, was give them this information. They took care of it for us. Um, a lot of times, I've had to spend a lot more of my money sending stuff out. So, I mean, that's a real nice advantage. And and artwork. I mean, I asked them to send me some artwork for our party. What what do you need? They go get it printed. They pay for it. Um, there's just been a lot of stuff like that that has been really helpful. Uh, that, you know, I don't have to worry about as much. Um, and, you know, of course, the prestige of being with a bigger publisher is not uh, a bad thing either in some ways. I think it lends credibility to the other work that, that we do with smaller presses, which I I know Jen and I have no intention of not doing more small press stuff. We'll keep working with small presses too, uh, but it's nice to have the bigger anthology that gets the higher profile because, in, in a way, it kind of legitimizes what else you're doing. Mm. Right. Well, I've heard nothing but good things about Tony Weisskopf, too. I've never um, talked to her before, but I've heard nothing but good things. I can't wait to meet her face-to-face. She seems like such a cool woman. She really is. She took me to breakfast at one of the World Cons recently that I happened to be at, the Jennifer one that, and, and all we did, we didn't even talk about business, but just a brief time at the end. All, most of what we did was just talk about, you know, what, what our lives were like as human beings. Uh, she's just really a relatable Human. I mean, that's one of the things, I guess, when you talk about advice that we would give to people, remember to get to know people as people first. And the professional stuff will come later. Because everybody yes. you're dealing with, no matter how famous you think they are, is a human being that you are going to find is, is just like you in a lot of ways. They're fans of their genre and other you know, authors that you may be fans of. They like some of the TV shows and movies and music and all that stuff. You can talk to them about all kinds of things and build a rapport as human beings that will help you more than anything else you do professionally to build all so much of this business really is relationship based. Um, And all of the things that have happened to me as a result of uh, doing one anthology just to show I could do it 
have been relationship based. I did space battles for a small press, and you know, Mike Resnick agreed to do a story, and he's become my mentor, helped me in so many ways. And there's so many other things that have all happened because of of connections like that. By the way, Tony is going to be at the next Superstars Writing Seminar in uh, February. If anyone you know does want to meet her, I know that's one oh, place cool. you can you, you can meet her. Awesome! Yeah, Another... She goes to a lot of conventions. She'll be at um, she should be at, at, at Sasquan Worldcon. Uh, she goes to either Worldcon or DragonCon every other year. So that's another way you can meet her. And and uh, also uh, the the LibertyCon in Chattanooga is a pretty good bet. They 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 and always has a big showing there every year. I'll be at Sasquan. That'll be fun. It's practically in my backyard. Yeah, I'll be there too. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, which one? Sasquan uh, Worldcon 2015. Oh, okay. This okay. Is Spokane, Spokane, Washington. Oh, that's not too far. I could get there in 20 hours. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, you could drive up there like you did the Oricon last year, Sean, when you hung out oh, with me. I know. That was awesome. But, I, you know, I made that drive with my two little kids and their car seats at the back, and they did amazingly well. 15, 16-hour drive. They did awesome. But I don't think I want to repeat that experience. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for you. Yeah, you might not get lucky twice. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to tempt fate. No, I'll, I'll have to think about that, actually. Well, when is Oricon? Uh, isn't it in November, though? Oricon is this weekend. Yeah, I thought it was. Yeah, it's really soon. Okay, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> but I'll be there with you in spirit, Ryan. I'll be there in spirit. <laughs> Drop everything, Sean. It's me. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be buying any more stories from him now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll be there at six. <laughs> uh, folks, the, the book is Shattered Shields. You can find it this week right now at your local bookstore. If you're going to buy it online, you can come to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Click on the image that you'll see in the show notes page, and that will take you directly to Amazon if you're going to do it that way. But if you have a bookstore nearby, I believe in supporting your local businesses if you can, so go get a copy there. Jennifer and Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. But before we close this up, is there anything else you wanted to mention about the book that uh, we didn't get into the conversation today? Get it, read it. You're going to enjoy it. There's 17 great stories of all kinds of variety, and yeah, I think you'll enjoy it too. Certainly, uh, if you're if you're an epic fantasy fan and you want to read some epic fantasy short fiction, it's a small market. There aren't a lot of books coming out with that, and we have we will feed your appetite and meet your needs. I guarantee you. With a great cover from Todd Lockwood, that's actually it reminds me a lot of uh, Ken Skoll's books through Tor. And did, did Lockwood do those covers? I don't know, but yeah, now that you say it, the it does remind me of the Psalms of Isaac. Yeah, just get the kind of the tone. Think, yeah. I don't think he did the Psalms of Isaac covers, but he did. Um, he, he's done a lot of really good work, and I'm really yeah. proud of this one. In fact, if you come to if you come to the Oricon party or find us online, I'm going to have signed book covers that he signed that we're going to be giving away. So. Oh, awesome. Very cool. All right, guys. So, well, thank you very much for being on the show, and best of luck with the book, and we look forward to having you both on again in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>